Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I as a Christian believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today we have an exciting guest named Emily Scott. She is the founding pastor of St. Lydia's Dinner Church. Emily spent eight years ministering to a scrappy collective of people with different backgrounds, incomes, and level of social skills. Her memoir, For All Who Hunger, recounts tender, incisive, and funny stories from her work with this unlikely congregation. Currently, she has Dreams and Visions Baltimore, and that is in partnership with St. Mark's Lutheran Church, in which she is both the reverend for both places. So there's a lot to break down in there, and first and foremost, I am absolutely promoting this book. I unfortunately didn't get to read all of it just for time's sake, but I will say as an accolade that I kept needing to put it down because I didn't have time to read it, and I kept finding myself reading more. So there you go. (laughs) That is a wonderful endorsement. Thanks for having me, Brenda. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I'm so happy to have you. And there's a lot of contention in the world. We've been talking about this a lot on God is Gray. We've been talking a lot about the us versus them. When I first came into this progressive space and openly talking about my faith journey with deconstruction and reconstruction, I was sort of on the side of maybe not being defensive, but really like stating my points and being like, this is why I believe what I believe. And I'm glad all of that body of work exists. But now I really feel like our call is for inclusivity, for unifying each other again, and for coming together, not only as believers, but of people that believe all kinds of different things. So I find your work really inspiring in that it seems like you built a congregation based on that principle to begin with. And this is in Brooklyn, New York, correct? Yeah, that's right. And I think you're right. I think it's um, one of the most human things that we do is to eat together. Everybody eats. (laughs) And so, and it's also this thing that's at the very center of our faith as Christians um, that Jesus practices and shares with his disciples. So we created this very special, very intimate space for people to come together from really a lot of different backgrounds and walks of life and to, to cook together and to eat together and to, to name that as holy um, and to share communion as part of that. Well, speaking of communion, you have very mouth-salivating descriptions of this bread. You're always talking <laughs> about the rosemary and olive oil and the onions baking in the warmth, and it made me so hungry I had to like make a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, excellent. I love it. Very poetic. I was talking before we got started. Emily and I actually share a publicist named Kelly, who's incredible. And I'm just reading the book, just like, oh, this is just so much poetry. It's really beautiful and immersive. But my initial thought when reading a book about sitting down with fellow believers, talking about Christ, and, and making myself vulnerable to the point that I'm seated I can't leave and there's a meal in front of me so that's also like a time that's being required of me I can't just step out I can't make an excuse I I hate using the word triggering too much but it kind of reminds me that in the very near like past I had experiences where my religious trauma was coming up and I would step into church spaces and feel very afraid and my body would start shaking and I would feel 
scared. And I think that even if I saw a diverse group of people, I would just immediately have that sort of reaction. So do you find that any of your congregants did have an initial distrust of being in a church space? And if so, how did you disarm them and make them feel welcome? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is something that came up um, throughout the founding of the church. There was no back pew at St. Lydia's. There wasn't a place where you could kind of sneak in and just kind of check it out. And I think that um, it required a certain amount of courage and also a certain amount of comfort and commitment from our congregants to kind of be ready to enter that experience because really it was hard to leave in the middle. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was one of the reasons that we we tried to um, find a space eventually when we moved to our own space that had a big pane glass window right across the front because I wanted people to be able to kind of walk by and peer in and kind of get a sense for it before they ever maybe wandered in for the first time. Mm. But I think, you know, what you're saying kind of speaks to the understanding that we we really put a lot of trust in our religious leaders. You know, we kind of put ourselves in their hands. And I think um, it points to the fact that religious leaders need to um, act in ways that merit that trust and understand what a vulnerable thing it is to come and to, to share a meal with others, to cook next to someone that you don't know, especially if you're carrying some kind of um, religious or spiritual trauma. If you've been told that the church isn't a place for you, or if you've been told that you need to be a certain kind of way in order to access God, um, that can be a really frightening thing. So Often in sort of the week-to-week routine, it was easy for me to kind of forget what it might be like for a newcomer to walk in the door and how how scary that might be and how much they were risking. But the staff and I always tried to remind ourselves. um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really valuable to consider. And this makes me just wonder more about the Lutheran faith in general and sort of what role and position you are put into as a leader. Because in my experiences of the evangelical church and especially, well, maybe not especially, but with both the evangelical church and the Roman Catholic church, the leaders are literally on a platform standing above us, espousing what they believe to be true, um, speaking it as absolute truth. And at the same time, I'm hearing from you that not only are you in this space with your congregants sitting on an equal field with them, actually literally like at the same spot as them, but also it seems there's an allowance for people to express their own opinions and their own interpretations of things. Is that part of the Lutheran tradition? Absolutely. I mean, I think um, there's a lot we could say about how that connects into the Lutheran tradition. Um, My interest as someone who went to divinity school was always an ecumenical interest. I was always fascinated by the number of ways that Christianity expresses itself. Um, And I love that variety and all of those um, just unique ways that, that different people worship. So in creating St. Lydia's, my hope was actually exactly what you're talking about, to create a space that was, um, that was very sort of, uh, everyone was on the same level. There was nobody standing above anyone else. And as a preacher, part of my job was to not only share some of my own story as honestly as I could, but also to create space for congregants to share some of their story. The implication being that there's not one person who is close to God or who knows God best or who can teach everyone else about God, but actually we all have the capacity to know God and to understand um, our particular relationship to God. And when we speak about those experiences, it reveals God for other people as well. So I would usually preach a sermon that was, you know, we're all sitting there at the dining room table. There were three tables in our space and I would stand up to preach and share about a 10 or 12 minute sermon that always um, involves some piece of my own experience and then invite the congregation to share a story as well. Um, That was, and it was very simple instruction, just a story that was sparked by the text. And I think it spoke to a theology that, um, that God is everywhere and all around and, and really you just need to pay attention. Um, And that we as people of God can almost like develop an eye 
for God, if that makes sense. <laughs> like yeah. the more you notice God's presence, the more you start to see God everywhere and that capacity to kind of theologically reflect on who God is for you and in the world just kind of grows and grows. So it is a very, um, a very communal experience as opposed to like one person who has the answers that need to be like taught to the unknowing masses <laughs> who don't have the answers. <laughs> yeah. Again, fascinated because that is not the way I grew up and that's not the way that I was taught. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder where you kind of draw lines or how often people might ask you what the lines are, especially if they are used to going into a space where their sexuality as it inherently is, is a sin or there's something about them that is deeming them an outcast of that society that wouldn't make their voices valuable, whether they be, you know, a person without a home at the moment or a trans person. And, and then I wonder how you even make them make it known that they're welcome in that space when they're used to all of these hard lines being drawn all the time. So I don't know exactly what the question is there, but <laughs> I'm just, I'm just wondering like how often people walk in and are like, well, I already know I'm not welcome here. So I'm mm. waiting for you to tell me I'm wrong because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I think part of how we managed that was to create a spiritual space that looked so radically different from any spiritual space they had encountered before. You know, there were no pews, there were no chairs facing a stage, there was no band, there was, um, a scene that was like so domestic and so familiar, which was like a kitchen and a bunch of tables and people around those tables. And I think that all of us have, maybe not all of us, I shouldn't say that, but many of us have an understanding and an experience that sharing food and meals is holy already. And so I didn't have to ever explain like, this is a holy meal. <laughs> Yeah. Like people knew it was a holy meal because all the meals that we share are holy. Um, it's really a matter of, of marking it as holy more than anything else. So I think that that environment that felt so familiar and also so um, special and sacred actually helped kind of um, shed some of the expectations that people might have of churches and church leaders. And, you know, then my job, which was a great responsibility, was to ensure that um, – we didn't accidentally fall into patterns that churches often fall into of saying everyone's welcome, but really only really having a little click or, um, you know, saying that we want to um, uphold all people, but not having provisions for those who are handicapped or have different needs. Um, and I think that as a leader, um, I try to always remember that we we are all in process and all, you know, on a road going to where we'd like to be as Christians. It's not like a once and done situation. So um, God's call for us as a church was always sort of being held in front of us as a place that we were headed to together. And I saw that as like a communal journey. Um, like we weren't there yet and we weren't ever really going to arrive in some like perfect place of like getting church exactly right. So I tried to, um, to tell people that as well, to just say like, we don't have everything right here and we absolutely will make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I always worry to your point that progressivism will become its own overly strict thing. Like if someone came into a progressive church and just happened to be like, look, I think Trump is the right candidate. Like would they be kicked out? You know? Mm -hmm. And I, I keep thinking that's what we really have to be aware of and be wary of. And I think that's why I even hesitate to immerse myself again in a church community. I feel much more comfortable in the community that God is Gray has built because it's exactly what you're saying, this sharing of stories. And mm -hmm. I keep going back to Jesus always speaking in parables and how he obviously understood the power of a story. Do you have any instances that come to your mind where someone's story was particularly impactful and change the course of a night or a course of someone's life even? Yeah, you know, one story that really comes to mind, and this kind of speaks to um, the sort of pluralism that I think our communities can hold, because um, we really don't need one one answer in order to follow God, <laughs> I don't believe. Yeah. Um, but we, we had a really beautiful evening one night when an intern at St. Lydia's preached a sermon um, and she preached a sermon on a psalm and talked about the psalmist's words in relationship to the death of her mother and how when she was going through this 
incredible process of grief um, that she found a new relationship with God. Like there was a new faith that was built for her. Um, and then she opened the sermon at the end and said, you know, uh, invited uh, anyone else who would like to share a story. And someone else in the congregation um, was going through an experience with their mother and she had cancer. And um, it was a very, very serious cancer. And, um, you know, they were like looking toward death as a family. And she shared like, I actually am having exactly the opposite experience. Like I feel that um, something in my faith life has broken, like something between me and God is, is gone and is broken and I'm never going to get it back. Um, and it was our practice at St. Lydia's to never try and resolve what someone had said into like a happy ending or a lesson for life or anything. We just let it sit um, and let that dissonance of those two like really different experiences just kind of sit together and then there happened to be another visitor who was there that evening. It was the mom of one of the congregants. And she had what I would describe as a more, um, what would I say? Like her, her theology was maybe different from many of the folks in the room. And she really believed that like just by praying, you could like solve your problems, which I think is not what everyone in the room would have believed. But she was able to share from her experience around death and grieving um, and the way that prayer has like helped her move through it in a way that like really belonged to her and was not a judgment on anyone else's experience. And then we just kind of let those, that those three stories sit together and they were so different. Um, and also so particular. And I think to me that spoke of the way that, um, you know, God shows up in our lives in really different ways. Um, and we don't have to resolve that. Mm, I love that. That's really beautiful. Mm. And what a just pure showing of why we cannot and should not impose our own ideas on other people's experiences or try to dredge everything for meaning. I think it's really meaningful to sometimes let someone cry or let someone's faith in God shake or rock or even dissipate and just trust that they are on their own experience yeah. and walk. Absolutely. And the Psalms in particular, speaking of the Psalms, are such a beautiful example of that because we have the full range of human emotion and experience demonstrated by the psalmist, even of doubt and of like, you know, desolation and, and like, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. You know, these very extreme emotions and we know that, um, that God can take it. So I think it's interesting that in Christian community, we often like really want to control those emotions and control that experience and kind of keep people like quote unquote in the faith because we have some fear that if we wander outside of it, we'll never find our way back. And I think that actually when you wander outside of it, that's actually kind of when you see God's face, you know, mm. <laughs> yeah. when you've wandered away, you encounter something. That's the root of why I called this channel God is Gray, because I found that in that gray space, that's where you actually had to conduct an investigation inside of yourself. That's when you actually had to press in and figure out what was going on, because yeah. black and whites are easy. Mm -hmm. But speaking of black and whites, how do you release your hand and let things live in a non-binary space and let things settle in this gray area or even let a congregant have these thoughts or want to walk away? What do you think separates you from the other position where pastors do seem to hold so tightly onto their congregants to the points that they're putting all of these really strict rules down, even... Well, let's get into emotions in a second. Let's answer that question first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think it happens in every tradition and every denomination. I, I think that that often is rooted in a sense of scarcity, like that there's not enough for our church, not enough people, not enough money, not enough whatever. Um, and the impulse is to just kind of cling harder. And I, I totally understand it because I wrestle with it myself all the time that, you know, maybe you've put like a lot of emotional energy into a certain congregant who came with like a lot of needs and really built a relationship with them. And then like, you know, after they've been at church for the, for a year, they say like, Oh, by the way, I'm moving, like, see you later. <laughs> and you think like, you know, I just, I just, was at the point where I thought you were maybe going to take up leadership and like this role and I really need help. And like, this thing isn't happening at the church and this is a mess. And like, you really need leaders and people sure. who can like help you along. So I think it's easy to come to a place where, um, 
I don't know, you kind of see congregants as all being part of this machine of like the church that should be running in a particular way. And um, it's important, I think, to like step back from that every so often and and to say like, actually, God is going to send us what we need to be faithful. Um, This church is never going to look perfect. Like that's just not what churches are like or why they're around. (laughs) And um, in letting go of like the congregant who moves, um, there is always like some beautiful thing that happens in response. So that's really been my, my, my experience as a pastor is that the more that I let go and the less that I try and control, the more there's a kind of sense of grace and abundance in my life and in the life of the congregation. And when you kind of I don't know. It kind of reminds me of like surfing or something. I've never surfed, but I feel like people talk about kind of letting like almost like submitting yourself into the motion as opposed to trying to like get really tight in your, um, in your actions, because the more you do that, like the less you can sort of be present to it. So just that kind of sense of the opening hand. Um, yeah, it makes a huge difference. And it also underneath that is like a, a feeling of trust. Like God will, God will give us what we need. You know, yeah. not what I need or what I've decided, but what, what God <laughs> will provide. Yeah. Uh, I wish every, every worried pastor could hear that. And I do, I did come in really hot with all of my anger towards the church and everything. But the more I've settled into this space, the more empathy I've gotten for those people who I acknowledge now are just people. And they were struggling with so many of the same things that I was. And you can't blame them for not wanting their church to fall apart or for getting scared when they see a young vulnerable person. That's just like, I'm just going to go off and do this thing, or I'm going to explore my sexuality, or I'm going to pick mm-hmm. up a drug habit and, and just realizing you cannot control human mm-hmm. beings as much mm-hmm. as you might want to. Well, yeah. And they've been set up in a certain way to be, um, to be these perfect people, to have a model family, to be a model person. And that is a, it's a lot of pressure. And I think the system has really created a set of expectations that just aren't, aren't attainable. And it ends up being a pressure cooker in many cases, you know, for the family, for the pastor, um, depending on the, on sort of high, how highly they've been elevated. But, um, that's not really, humans aren't meant to be that, infallible, you know? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is why I so, so enjoyed, you know, not being in any special clothes, not being way up on a pulpit or way up on a stage, but just down with my people. Cause it, it said to them, like, I eat food just like you. Like I have awkward conversation just like you. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm grumpy. Hopefully I'm like, you know, coming to this space with, um, with everything that I can, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It takes the pressure off. (laughs) Yeah. I think the last thing I want to ask you about is emotions. Have you Mm -hmm. ever been in a space or in a faith practice where you recognized or saw people's emotions being restrained? So many of my community members, myself included, have experienced being told, your heart is deceitful, your flesh is evil, so that if an emotion comes up, whether it be grief whether it be anger, especially if you're a woman, um, horniness, whatever it is, heartbreak, that these are things that if you just are strong enough in your faith, you can pray them away and you shouldn't be mm-hmm. residing in these emotions, you know, or we'll give you grace for a couple of days, but then you better buckle it up again and, and get yeah. back in here with a smile on your face. Rain it in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and the smile on your face part is the, is the part that hurts me the most. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing about that. It's like, actually what God wants is not your full self. It's, it's the polished version of you. Um, it just, I don't know. It just breaks my heart to hear those kind of stories because I would hope that the church can be a place that can accept us at our sort of most broken and at our weakest. And that, in fact, in Lutheran theology, that is the place where God enters in. Like that's the place where God comes and finds us. It's not when our life is like perfect and polished and getting better and like we're making more money and like our family is perfect. <laughs> but actually Lutheran theology says that um, that that God's grace um, comes to us in like our weakest moments. Um, so I think there's this lovely piece of our tradition that says like, actually you learn about God when you're in those places of, of desolation. Um, and we should kind of honor those places. Um, yeah, I, I, I tried with St. Lydia's and in my work now to kind of create spaces that could hold that full range of emotion in a sort of container 
so that it felt safe and also to hold them in a way that, um, you know, they're going to come out someplace, they come out sideways. <laughs> and when yeah. I, th I think when we ask people to kind of hold them in and keep them under wraps, they come out sideways and we end up with, um, you know, really dysfunctional relationships with other people in the church or with our, in our family. So trying to create a healthy church environment where people can communicate with each other and like have their feelings and all those things. It sounds simple, but it's, it's not easy. <laughs> no, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like you run a great risk of making yourself very vulnerable and the completely other end of the spectrum. I imagine that you would have certain people that come in that love being the center of attention and their story is always 80 minutes long when everyone else is five minutes or, you know, people are perpetually coming in with the same issue over and over again because we bring so much of our damage. So how do you find that line between having grace and being inclusive, but also maybe setting boundaries so that your congregation yeah. is protected from, from people that mm -hmm. maybe not even have ill motives, but like just bringing their humanity too much. Like, I don't even know how yeah. you draw those lines. No, it's a delicate balance. And I think it goes back to, because everyone in the congregation deserves time and space and feelings, not just one or two people. Mm -hmm. um, and it, often in communities, like the biggest people are the ones that kind of get the most airtime <laughs> right. or attention. So I think it, for me, it always came back to the container that was being created, which is the liturgy. So we have very specific guidelines for sharing stories like we would say um after scripture for instance we'd sh say share a word or a phrase that struck you in the text and everyone would have a chance but it was a word or a phrase <laughs> it wasn't like 15 sentences or 15 minutes um and it was also like a short a short story um i think i would say i can't even remember anymore but like two or three minutes so i think the ways that we invite people to um like find find a frame to exist within that actually teaches them to um it gives them an opportunity to be in touch with people in a way that's like more human and better do you know what i mean yeah like to bring their full selves and also to bring their themselves in a way that orients them towards others because that's another piece of it mm. like it's not just you but it's also your relationship to others and how we like hold all of that in church but your question about emotions like for me that all goes back to the notion that god created us good um, and I think that's something that different theologians have different views on. Um, but for me, like God created humans and creation and called it good. And that means that like the full range of our emotion and our sexuality and our bodies is also good, which isn't to say it doesn't get us into trouble sometimes yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, help us make decisions that like maybe weren't the best decisions, but like fundamentally we are good. And there's not, I don't feel that there's like pieces of ourselves that we need to be like actively engaged in resisting um mm. as christians like i just don't believe that oh my gosh say that again for the people <laughs> in the back right uh, yeah there there aren't uh how did you just put it there aren't areas of yourself that you should be actively resisting mm -hmm. that's what i keep saying and it's so difficult because there's so much confirmation bias in it like a lot of people yeah. who have been told to repress pieces of themselves whether it be their sexuality or whether it be a woman with a strong personality or a man who's more sensitive whatever these binaries and stereotypes that we're trying to reside in as if sarah bessie puts it like the bible is about like 1950s housewifery or something <laughs> um yeah. you know just those those like resistances, I think there's, I know there's such a huge belief that we have to sacrifice and that it means we'll be in pain. And then it means if you're struggling upstream, you are just working really hard and you're being very diligent to honor God. So mm -hmm. how do you, how do you even begin to help people conceive that they are not only good, but that struggling upstream for whatever reason is actually not what God is calling them to do? Yeah, it's really tough. And you know, the, one of the pieces, another piece that breaks my heart is I've heard a lot of folks who have grown up in traditions that are very restrictive say, like, I feel like this tradition built a lot of trap doors, like, into my experience where I can't trust my own responses. Mm. So, like, I feel like yoga might be something that would be good for me to explore. But my tradition taught me that, like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, that's not good. It's of the devil or whatever. So every time you kind of try and walk out beyond the tradition a little bit, you hit this 
this teaching that's like that's that's evil or that's wrong and and ultimately it's a feeling that like you are not able to trust your own intuition or gut because all of that must be like the voice of the devil or the adversary or what have you um and i think that's really damaging and what it what it sets up honestly is situations that are rife for abuse because if you can't trust yourself and your own sense of 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 intuition then you won't trust yourself when someone touches you in a place they shouldn't touch you, who's a religious, you know, leader, you'll think like, well, I guess this is what it's supposed to be because they're the ones that have all the answers and I have none. So I just think it's so incredibly dangerous. And in terms of kind of trying to like open that up and walk it back, I think it's very difficult because um, there's so much training and so many kind of tapes running that are saying, don't trust that voice inside of you. But there are many, many, many mystical ancient traditions in which the voices inside of us are the voice of God. Mm. And so what has the church been doing in divorcing us and disconnecting us from those voices? Like I truly, I remember being a child and sitting in the pews in church and um, hearing scripture passages about God speaking to people and thinking like, well, is that like this feeling that I have sometimes in my heart that like, that there's a sense of like something sacred happening or like this sense of intuition or this sense of pull. Um, and I think that ultimately, yes, like that is how God speaks to us and, and different people in different ways, right? We all have these different gifts, but um, we have to start with an understanding of that being a good and holy thing. Um, yeah. And it gets more complicated. You know, some people um, have intuitions that lead them to very damaging places. Like if you've experienced addiction of any kind, um, the sort of intuition that you feel can often lead you to a place that's that's death dealing. I think the biggest paradigm that's been helpful for me in talking with my congregants has been one that I learned from a professor of mine, Storm Swain. And her question for anything is just, is it life-giving or is it death dealing? Um, and those are very, very biblical questions, life and death. <laughs> mm. um, and you can apply them to almost anything, like this decision I'm making at work. Is it life death? life dealing is it life giving for me and for the people around me or is it death dealing um the decisions that i'm making sexually you know we don't have to judge who you're with how long you've known them anything about it is it life giving for you and for the other person or is it death dealing for you or someone that you're that you're connected with um now that's a very basic like ethic to start things off but i think it's it's been very helpful to me in a lot of different situations and i do think that like fundamentally it's um it's faithful, you know? I love that. And I will say it's funny because I was going to piggyback on the way that I always ask myself the same question. And in your questioning of in sexuality, is this life giving or death dealing? Anyone who's been indoctrinated into an ill practice of faith could say, oh, well, it's death dealing if I'm having sex with a woman just on its face because it's going to lead me to hell. So mm -hmm. my you know, and I'm not saying that invalidates what, the way she does it yeah. at all. I think that's incredible. But the way I say it is, am I making this choice out of love or fear? And, nice. yeah. and then you can also bring, I think under fear are shame and pain. Mm -hmm. Am I, and I behaving out of pain? Like if I get upset with my boyfriend and I say some ill words to him, did that come out of pain that I had from another relationship? Or did it come out of shame that he saw me in a certain way. Did it come out of fear that I'm going to lose him, you know, or, or are you behaving out of love? And I think I would think, but you, I would love for you to tell me because you are queer identifying and gender queer identifying. So you've more experience of this than I do, but I would just think for LGBTQ plus people, it's a great question because it's like most of the time when you're resisting a homosexual experience, it is out of fear if you really mm -hmm. break it down and look at it. Because even if you think you're going to go to hell, what is that? Mm -hmm. It's fear. Yeah, it's fear. Would you agree yeah, it's with that? Totally, it's a totally fear-based system. Absolutely. Like holding, holding a threat of like eternal damnation <laughs> over people's lives is completely rooted in no fear. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just, um, you know, engaging scripture for as long as I've engaged it, I just don't think that's what God wants for us. Like, that's not what I read when I read the Bible. I read stories of people who make huge mistakes, who wander in strange directions, you know, who end up in like really messed up situations. And like the constant is God's presence in love. And, um, you know, there's certainly arguments to be made that like God appears in wrath and fear and all of these things as well. Um, and we can have all kinds of conversations about that. But 
when it comes to LGBTQ um, belovedness, the best evidence for me is that when I when I when I meet someone who is closeted and then see them ten years later when they've come out, I can see life like pouring out of them. Like I can yeah. see the love and the abundance and the openness and the sense of like just the sense of their own belovedness. Um, and I just I think that's what God wants us not lives of restriction where we have to kind of be constantly afraid of our own selves you know our own intuitions our own desire that's just not what god wants (laughs) yeah you're right you can see the death in somebody by the way they're behaving in that place um what if you don't mind us getting a little personal have you always known that you were queer and especially gender queer because to me as a older side of the millennial scale i these are new concepts to me that i've never had to encounter because didn't apply to me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) um i have known since i was a little girl i remember knowing that i was um I think I would call it more of like a yearning. Like there was a sense of yearning to be um, boy-like and to be girl-like at different times. And um, there was a yearning to kind of be one of the boys and a a sense of like confusion, honestly, about what it would mean to be one of the girls. (laughs) And it's, it's only in retrospect that I kind of see that more clearly, like how uncomfortable I was and how much I was, um, kind of imitating girliness when I would spend time with my friends who were girls um, and trying to kind of like be what I thought I was supposed to be. Um, But I would say that like the big moment came when I was in divinity school actually and I took a course on gender and sexuality and was introduced to the Kinsey scale, which is um, the notion that that, that gender and sexuality exist on a spectrum as opposed to like a binary. So it's not an either or, it's a sort of somewhere in between for many people. Um, and Im- immediately, as, her- as soon as I heard that notion, I was like, I'm right in the middle when it comes to gender. Like, absolutely. Mm. The, the shift in the learning took a, mu- took a, excuse me, I'm losing my words. Um, I think, like, what took a much longer time was figuring out that I could actually express myself and my sense of gender on the outside <laughs> instead of just like knowing it on the inside. And that's, you know, a long story because I think for a long time I was caught up in, um, in understandings of femininity and, um, what it meant to be feminine. And I really felt that I needed to be feminine if I was going to be in a relationship. I didn't articulate that for a long time, but that's kind of what I believed in my mind, like the tape that was running. And so it took a long time to divest myself from this kind of imitation of like femme, you know, aesthetics, if that makes sense. And, and only when I kind of dropped all of that, did I actually notice like, oh my gosh, I've been incredibly uncomfortable for years (laughs) and I hadn't even really let myself experience it. So, um, speaking of like seeing someone years later who feels more at home in themselves and, um, more sort of filled with life, I, I absolutely feel just like every day I get up and I feel like myself and it, it feels amazing, you know? Mm. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say I've I've felt it that extreme with gender, but I have felt it with masculinity and femininity. And I know mm-hmm. there's no Kinsey scale for that, but you know, I've always been incredibly independent and leadership qualities and so I I can only imagine the way that I've always compared it is if I was in the monarchy that I would be losing my mind wearing kitten heels and pearl necklaces <laughs> and having my hair up like To me, that, I guess, epitomizes this very, like, dainty, quiet, like, only speak when it's exactly the right time to speak kind of femininity. And Mm -hmm. I know that I would just shrivel up and die. (laughs) Yeah, like, I don't care if I'm in a palace with millions of dollars and, like, Mm -hmm. I would just shrivel up and die. (laughs) So I think that speaks to like a truth which is that there's so many different ways to be masculine and feminine um and we kind of use them as like again these two different poles but like there's so many different ways to be a woman there's so many different ways to be someone who's genderqueer like it's so diverse um and i think that like western culture has really narrowed all of those ideas down in such a specific way that we're always wondering like am i doing this right and in fact like yes, you're doing it right. You know, like everybody's, everybody's being who they are. And like these, these are, um, 
overlays that get kind of pasted over the top of us that we we feel like we have to kind of find our way toward one or the other but could you do you feel or could you understand the fear that people have against that like why are conservative christians or leaders bucking against that because i think it's really easy to just accuse men of being misogynistic pastors and brushing them off as idiots or ignorant like we have so many ways of just dismissing mm-hmm. that end of the the argument and just diminishing why they might think that. And I'm not saying what they think is right, but I just wonder if you have a perspective on why people feel it's scary, even in the whole of society, even a non-religious person that lives in Nebraska who doesn't want to see me walking down the street, you know, mm-hmm. as something on the more masculine end of things. Yeah, I think... I think it really has to do with um, a sense of order in the world that we know what to expect and we know that there's a certain script that we can follow. And I think that some part of us maybe believes that if we follow the script, like things will turn out okay. And so when the script isn't followed, Mm -hmm. it feels like total chaos as opposed to just difference, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And humans, I mean, this is just a very natural thing that humans do is that we kind of try and number one, categorize things and put them in like little boxes because it helps us feel like we understand and it helps us feel secure. Um, But also to kind of have an if-then way of thinking. Like, so if I go to school and then go to college, I will graduate and I will get a job and I will be successful. And of course, like then a recession hits and like that script doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think, you know, these relationships to femininity and masculinity to male and female, um, and to gender, they help people kind of feel like there's a controlled narrative for our life. And when that gets um, questioned or sort of thrown into um, the unknown, there is this sense of like, oh my gosh, it's going to be chaos. And like nothing that we believed is going to move forward. Also underneath that, you know, there, we could talk about sort of patriarchy and control and how, um, you know, how women have been kind of conscripted into (laughs) playing a certain role in that script that keeps us divested from power, wealth, all kinds of other things. So that's secondary, but the most generous explanation I think has to do with like fear again, to go back to fear. Um, and I understand that. And honestly, you know, for most of my life, I had a script running in my head, which is like, if I curl my hair and like put on mascara and like look really pretty and compete with these other like totally hot women in New York. Like maybe someone will want to marry me. Oh God. So many hot women in New York. So many hot women, right? Hot babe central. Yeah, absolutely. It's very intimidating. So you just, you just, you you feel always just like, wow. (laughs) Anyway, but I think like that script was like, I have to play this role in this drama so that I like reach the end of the, you know, I, I reached the end of this game and I can win. Um, Mm. and I, I wasn't in a place where I was imaginative, imaginative enough or able to like divest myself from that script to say, maybe there's a totally different script for me. And in fact, what I found is like the minute I put on a tie, my whole life opened up in a way that like threw all the scripts out, out the window and like brought me toward so much love, so much life, so much like abundance. So yeah, I think the scripts are just like another way of sort of finding that sense of constraint that, that leads us to control each other in a certain way. Yeah. I'm trying to think from my perspective too. I, I've admitted on this channel that I offended isn't the word, but when Gen Z started really confronting me with the notion of, I don't have a gender or I'm going to call myself whatever I want. I definitely <laughs> had moments in my private life where I was like, what the hell are they talking about? And <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't offensive and I wouldn't say I was scared because I'm not mm-hmm. really scared of people's self-expression, but I will say, I mean, I'm definitely not at all. I love self-expression, mm-hmm. but I think it was challenging for me because my view was if, if you're saying you are more male identifying, what are those characteristics? And are you discounting my femininity? Like mm. can't femininity be that I have a job or I like playing soccer, like all of these mm-hmm. binary things that we've put, like the fact that even, I mean, we don't have it in the English language, but all the romance languages actually have masculine and feminine, mm-hmm. you know, pronouns to everything. So 
Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it offended my sensibility of like, if you're saying you're that, then are you saying I can't be what I am, which is, I I like identifying as, you know, powerful woman. And Mm -hmm. so for powerful women to be like, well, I'm not a woman. And I'm like, why? Because you're powerful. And I think that was kind of like the, Mm -hmm. the thing that I had going on in my head. It really brings a lot into question, you know, the whole way that we've kind of conceived of ourselves and our relationship to our bodies and our gender and everything. And I think that you pointed to one thing, which is like, if you're this, then can I still be this? And I think that that's a piece that comes up for a lot of people. Like if you are, you know, genderless, then like, what does it mean? Can I still be a woman? (laughs) Right. And, and that's the thing is like someone being who they are, I don't think like bumps into or makes lesser than another person being who they are. You know what I mean? Like we're all interacting with gender in our own particular way and deconstructing it, reconstructing it, you know, trying to figure out what it means. Um, But I think ultimately it's about this sense of freedom, you know, and also just to continue to peel back the layers of like how much of it is constructed by society around us. Um, Yeah. And I am going to upset some people in saying this, but I, the greatest <laughs> revelation that I had on this little gender journey I went on was really realizing that God himself, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, because it's the Bible and it's what we've got in English, um, God himself mm-hmm. identifies openly as non-binary. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I was, <laughs> I was actually really annoyed by that revelation because I wanted to like buck the, I don't know, it was funny. I found, I'm just trying to be open. I hope I'm not offending anyone. I'm not trying to. I'm just going to be honest about the yeah. journey of complication that I had with it. And then I Absolutely. think when God was like, am I not non-binary? I was like, oh man, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's amazing, right? Because we have this incredible example of someone who we're made in the image of. I think that the piece that like really blew my mind when I was learning about this was the, um, and this is kind of a totally different direction, but was the fact that something like 1% of people in the world are intersex, which means that they actually are neither male nor female, which is, which is beautiful when you start to think about God being neither male nor female, but that they are so deeply reflective of God. It's like, wow, that's really incredible. But, but that really like blew up my notion of gender being like directly related to sex because 1% of the population is about the same number of people who have red hair. Like this is not, um, not a small number. It's not a small number of people. It's a lot of people who are just made differently in a way that really disrupts our understanding that there are two genders and there's nothing in between. I mean, there's there's a lot, um, both biologically and in terms of gender expression, there's just a lot of diversity of how people are made. Yeah. And I think that's like so fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And I think educating ourselves on human history is so, so crucial because a lot of us that have been given this script for just the decades that we've been alive and a lot of people can feel like things are getting out of control. I hear so many conservative Christians talk about the world is out of control and these kids are just letting go of their gender. But then if you look at the history of our civilization, you see that many other civilizations before us, many other places on the planet, have there been not only non-binary people, but trans people. Mm -hmm. And not only were they not outcasts, but they were celebrated in some places. So I think when you realize it's like, again, getting rid of that fear, calming down, getting into your history and being like, it's like, I love in Ecclesiastes when he says there's nothing new under the sun, just Mm -hmm. recognizing that this is nothing new. We've encountered this before. And not only is it not new, but it's nothing to be afraid of. So just look at it. (laughs) Yeah. And my, my favorite example of that biblically is the Ethiopian eunuch, who's like, the first convert to Christianity. I mean, it's incredible. It's this person who is in such an interesting place in society, like in some ways doesn't, doesn't fit, like isn't allowed in the temple because of his status, status as a eunuch, but still follows this God. And like, it's just, it's, it's a phenomenal thing to look at his story and really kind of take that apart and sink into it because, um, yeah, you think like, wow, this is, the Bible does not present us with any kind of binary, uh, expectations. The closer you look. (laughs) Yeah, it's bizarre too. We need to acknowledge the stories that we've been given in our tradition as well. Like the fact that I have no idea what you're talking about is really telling. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which which brings me to my last two questions because I know we have to get to the end. But I think 
I would love to know where that is in the Bible exactly so mm -hmm. I can look into it because I don't know. <laughs> and also just questioning your faith. I know a lot of people go to seminary and there is actually a high statistic number of people who end up saying that they've lost their faith. Mm -hmm. And my theory is that it's because we were taught this strict binary rules and everything. And then when you actually begin digesting and learning the Bible and going into its translations, you realize that so many of the things you've been given were a lie. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think obviously the reconstructing moment is when you realize that's okay, that those are lies. It doesn't invalidate the text mm -hmm. or my, or your faith. But um, did you encounter any of that in your seminary mm -hmm. moment? Yeah. Well, first, just encourage everybody to read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Please. Um, it's wonderful. <laughs> and I believe it's Acts chapter 8, I want to say. I could be wrong, but you can Google it and you'll find it. It's a, it's a, it's a really phenomenal story. And I have a woman um, that I shared at Dreams and Visions about it. So maybe I'll send you the link to that if you'd like it, Brenda. Yes. Um, but it's a lovely story. <laughs> um, and then in terms of like going to seminary and losing your faith, you know, that is something across denominations that's, that's real. Um, when I went to divinity school, almost everybody goes through this thing in the first year where you kind of feel like everything has broken apart and is just like in pieces on the floor around you. It's kind of our own deconstruction moment. And I think even those of us who grew up in faith-based traditions that were fairly intellectual, you hit divinity school and sometimes you're, and, and suddenly you're getting all these, um, you're, you're, you're studying, you're looking at the Bible in a way that is really, really different. And it kind of feels like all the magic kind of falls out of it <laughs> for a while. Mm. But I think if you kind of keep walking through those waters, you, you eventually come to a place where faith feels different, but is, um, but is very, very present. Like it, it reconstructs in a new and different way. Part of it, I think honestly, is just, a um, is about our sort of life cycle issues. You know, that many of us are instilled with faith when we're children and then we become teenagers, and often the faith that we're handed down is um, quite emotional and sometimes dramatic. Like we're being invited into these big dramatic moments and like weekend retreats with like mountaintop experiences. And it's very, very, um, it can be very produced, right? Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it can be highly manipulative, you know? Um, and I think that that really does a disservice to a lot of people because when all the lights are off and when all the like weekend retreats are over, you are left asking, well, like who is God and where do I find God? Like I feel um, like I've been left with nothing. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I think that um, the notion of like the still small voice of God um, speaking to us in ways that are not always dramatic or, um, or over the top becomes really important. And we, we kind of go back to the beginning and like start listening for God's voice in a different way. And that can be, you know, a lifelong process of figuring that out. But, um, yeah, I just think it's really important, um, to be honest in the way that we teach children and teenagers about faith, because, um, they're going to carry that with them for the rest of their lives. And, um, faith doesn't doesn't solve our problems it doesn't make our lives perfect um and it doesn't make us perfect and if we teach our kids that um there's going to be a big set of disappointments to face <laughs> mm -hmm. so then the question becomes like what can we teach them about um who god is and how god is present to them um always yes yes and amen I was just re-watching uh, Bill Maher's Re Religious the other night, and nice. I couldn't get through it because he's just so over-the-top cynical, and that's fine. I, I would love to meet him one day and have a really good conversation because yeah. I think I could stand with him and have a good, good conversation. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it just reminded me of how remiss we are to not properly educate ourselves and not apologetics like you need to prove that mm -hmm. we have a seven-day earth not those mm -hmm. kind of apologetics like the apologetics that are just real like that are very very founded and rooted in a very deep understanding of faith and how mm -hmm. complicated the text is how many times I hear Christians lie to the next generation and say it's black and white and it's clear and and you're just like why do we keep telling these lies because in the moment that lie is confronted with truth which is that mm -hmm. it's the opposite it's incredibly complicated and complex 
then your face can fall your apart. Face and, shatters. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, like you said, can be a beautiful thing and watching someone go through it can be scary, but it's actually a, a great reckoning. I had that reckoning as well, yeah. but, um, but yeah, it shouldn't be so fragile. Like, why is it, why is it so fragile? And we have so many biblical symbols and experiences to go to in those times, like the, the symbol of the wilderness, you know, like there are dry times in our faith. Like we shouldn't lead people to believe that there will always be this fountain that's like constantly, <laughs> you know, running of faith that you can just drink from it every time. Like it's not a consumer-based experience. Right? <laughs> uh, don't yeah. get us on a whole other yeah. topic. <laughs> a whole other topic. <laughs> um, the last thing I'd like to end with is something that any foodie listening to this was probably mad. I didn't already ask you from the chat. <laughs> I see in the background, you have two images of thanks and bread. You and your book, again, talk so much about the Eucharist and this olive oil and onion and rosemary loaf. And I admittedly will say that I do not relate to that at all. And I'm so curious why the Eucharist resonates with you so much, why it's so meaningful to you. Yeah. I think... um... I think it has to do with the role that the table played in my family growing up. I think I was someone who um, really, really desperately wanted to bring people together around tables um, because it didn't always necessarily feel like my whole family was there together. We had different moments when, um, when we were not together as I was growing up. And so that sense of... Um, what happened when people ate and when they broke bread and what happened in church when we sort of gathered around this one table as this community. I think that that spoke to me in a very, very resonant way, um, that there's always a possibility to be connected to people as opposed to disconnected to them. Um, and there've been so many experiences throughout my life where that like breaking of bread has been the, the only road toward wholeness really. So it's meant a lot to me. Um, yeah. And I know that it resonates for different people in different ways. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. It makes so much sense. And that's why I brought up the foodie element because mm-hmm. the first person that comes to mind is Anthony from Queer Eye. Yeah. And <laughs> he talks so much about the significance. And I know cooking and feeding people and having that unity is such a love language. It's mm-hmm. such an expression of love. And it makes sense to me for sure that that would be meaningful. Yeah. And I love how beautiful that you created a church around something that was so wholeheartedly important to you as a child. I, I really believe so many of us just need to get back to our childlike selves, that childlike faith. This is why I think our inner child work is so important because you really have to not only heal whatever that child was broken by the lies that you were told about going to hell for being in love with a certain person or for acting a certain way, but Mm -hmm. also just going back to honoring and respecting what that child always wanted. And I'm finding the more that my life work like morphs into some sort of career, I'm like, oh yeah, I was always writing stories and I was always talking to people about Mm -hmm. divinity and I was always doing exactly this until I had a little mm-hmm. breakdown moment, but just honoring that whole experience. Can you relate absolutely. to that as well? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I think that's like those childhood questions, desires, they are, um, that's like the base of our creative work. It's like, I think we all have a question that we're going to try and answer for the rest of our lives. Um, and if we, if we try and move away from answering it, it will come back around and find us, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we can't really wander away from it for, for too long. And that's part of where call, our, our feeling of call, I think is buried is in those, those early experiences. So yeah, yeah. God moves through them. <laughs> yeah. And I think the last thing I want to clarify is, I've been presented that your, your struggle with God will be whether or not you can not do these specific sins your whole life. Mm. That's the way it was presented to me. But now as you know, a progressive Christian on this journey, and I realized I was just naturally doing it this way anyway, is that life is an exploration. And, mm-hmm. and now I'm like, I hope till the day I die, I'm learning new things about divinity And I love that you presented that as not only something acceptable, but exciting. 
Mm-hmm. And, and like we said in this book, for all who hunger, everyone, please go pick it up. It's available now. Uh, you're recounting the stories of people and how they were coming together and their unique experiences with just all different kinds of people, unexpected characters, and honoring all of them as not only equals, but all stamped with the image of God in these really mm. beautiful ways. So thank Thanks. you for putting that work to paper. It's really beautiful. Thanks, Brenda. <laughs> Thanks for reading it. And I'm so glad I get to um, share it with your community. So yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful space you've built. Oh, thank you. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, just to hang in there. These are rough, <laughs> these are rough days. <laughs> I'm seeing that cat poster. Hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. <laughs> Everybody just take good care. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's perfect. All right. We love you all so much. I will link all the pertinent materials below. God bless. Bye.